Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you for being here in church this morning. God is always working. And sometimes God works in big, obvious ways that you see something and it's just miraculous. And you know, God healed that person or God did something incredible. And there are times in our lives when God works in ways that maybe we don't realize right away in a way that seems like a coincidence or a small thing in the moment, but then you find out God was up to something incredible. And I have a short story to tell you this morning about a time that seemed like a chance encounter, a, a coincidental meeting back in the 1990s. And I know many of you weren't even alive in the 1990s, <laughs> but I was a teenager in the 1990s and at a music festival in Pennsylvania called Creation Festival. And hey, there you go. Somebody heard a creation. Um, and while we were there, um, my family and I had a chance to meet and learn about an organization in Haiti uh, called New Missions. And we got to know the Detellis family. And I will just tell you that that was not a chance encounter. That meeting at a festival in the 1990s changed my life and set the direction of my life in a different way because God was at work. God was doing something beyond what I could see. And this morning might be one of those days for you. This might be one of those moments that you just came to church to come to church, but perhaps God has prepared something for you this morning. That's my hope and my prayer for each of us that when we come into this place, that we are transformed by encountering Jesus Christ. So I met George Detellis, I think in 1997, but it might be a little bit off. I'm old and I don't remember it that clearly. But, um, but over the course of the next couple of years, um, we had a couple of opportunities to go to Haiti. And we visited um, the, the mission in Nepali Bordemare. Uh, we got to meet uh, George's brothers and his parents. Um, and it was an incredible blessing uh, to us, and we've stayed involved. Um, my parents um, and my sisters uh, sponsored a, a child for many years named Yagel, um, who uh, grew up there in the mission in Haiti. And um, so when I get to introduce George Detellis to you this morning, I get to introduce a man who has been a faithful part of a ministry that reaches needy people um, in, a, in a part of the world that God loves dearly. I get to introduce a man who's been faithfully serving in that mission nearly 40 years. Uh, a man whose family has been committed um, to being faithful to Jesus. I, I get to introduce you uh, to a man who's an author of books, a, a man who's a actually gifted photographer, um, an excellent leader. As you'll see, he's a great speaker and he's a preacher but I get to introduce a friend who's had an impact in my life. And so I hope that this morning, you will give a wonderful Townsend Church welcome to my friend, George Detellis. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. Praise the Lord, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Seth. 40 years ago, 40 years ago, December 26, 1979, I was only 18 years old. My dad was a pastor of a church in Worcester, Massachusetts called Calvary Evangelistic Center, 
we were a tiny little church, and we were supporting uh, a feeding program in the country of Haiti. And the first Sunday of every month, when we'd have communion service, we would collect up nickels and pennies. And for six cents a day, we could feed a child. And that was the little thing that we would do as a church for missions through the Council of Evangelical Churches. And on December 26, 1979, 10 of us went to Haiti for a 10-day missions trip. I was 18 years old. I had never been on an airplane. I had never had a passport before. I had never been out of the country. It was a life-changing experience in my life as a teenager because when I came back to America, I saw who I was for the first time. We live in the greatest country in the world. I love America. Every one of us has one of these things in our pocket. We can push a button, and right now, men with guns will come to protect you. <laughs> you can call, and they'll send an ambulance to come and get you. <clears throat> we live in an amazing, amazing country. We began to go to Haiti every winter and on these winter mission trips in February, and we got more involved. In March of 1982, my father and I went to Haiti with American Express traveler's checks. And there was a piece of land that was for sale, and we bought five acres on the ocean for $7,500. Is there any land here? Like, <laughs> But I drove around yesterday. There's like thousands of acres of farmland. I mean, they won't give up a little? That farmland around here must be worth like billions. It's like unbelievable. And from the capital city of Port-au-Prince, you go 25 miles south into the Laogon Plain. The Laogon Plain is just as flat as your farmland, just as flat as can be, with a circle of mountains roundabout. And it's a, it's a coastal plain where they grow sugarcane. And then you turn off the highway, you drive three miles, come out to the ocean, and down the ocean, there was a little grove of coconut trees and a stream running down one side. Somebody had passed away, and this pastor had found this piece of land for us, five acres on the ocean for $7,500. There was 12 children that were settling their estate. So we went into one-room lawyer's office, and as each of the 12 children received their one-twelfth of the $7,500 in Haitian gourds, they would sign on the deed, and we had a little Polaroid camera. We took a picture of them signing the deed. We didn't trust anybody. We didn't know what was legal. But in March of 1982, we purchased this piece of property and made plans to start a mission in Haiti. We needed missionaries, and on Sunday morning, my dad began to try to recruit. We need missionaries to go to Haiti. You need to raise your own support. I need you to make a minimum of a one-year commitment. You're going to have to learn to speak Haitian Creole. If there's anybody here that wants to go to Haiti to be a missionary, see me after church. And two couples from our church that had been on one-week mission trips volunteered. And my brother Charlie, who was just 18 years old, said, Daddy, can I go to Haiti? This morning, my brother Charlie is in Haiti, and he spent a life there running that mission. Our very first mission vehicle was a 1970 Dodge one-ton pickup truck that we purchased at the Worcester Surplus Vehicle Auction for $500. What can you get for $500 at a surplus vehicle auction? 
but that truck today would be worth a lot of money. <laughs> it had belo belonged to the cemetery department. On both doors it said Worcester Cemetery Department, vehicle 503, and the, the saddleback fenders were rotted off, and we took it back to the church parking lot and welded down the fenders, put a seven kilowatt diesel generator in the back, and my brother and I drove that from Worcester to Miami and paid $1,000 to send that old truck to Haiti. January 6, 1983, a team of missionaries went off to Haiti. My parents made plans to go for 10 weeks. There was the four pioneering couples, my brother Charlie, the five missionaries, went off to Haiti with tents and pioneered a mission on that property, built the first building. In the fall of 1983, we had a school with brush arbors with 135 children. And uh, it was really a feeding program. And we told the people from the nearby village of Nepali, send us your children and we'll feed them. And um, every Sunday we had church. And slowly, as we did the simple natural things, God began to do the supernatural, bringing people into our life. And uh, the mission began to grow. From there, we went from Nepali to Biray to Concrab to LaSalle to T-Riviere. And I can tell you all these stories of the mission growing out. In February 1986, there was a revolution. The Duvalier family, the father and son, who had ran the country since 1957, there was a revolution. And that family and their entourage were, were pushed out of the country. The Duvaliers were exiled to uh, Paris, and, and there was much celebration and hope for democracy. From February 1986 to 1996, during that 10-year period, there was nine governments. There was just coup d'etat and civil war, and um, the general was in charge, and then another general took over, and, and Haiti's had a lot of political unrest and this past year in July, they assassinated the president and there's a prime minister around in the country. It's been, been pretty rough. And, uh, but throughout that time, the mission has been continuing on. Today in Haiti, while we're here in church, there are 30 churches throughout that Laogon Plain, 30 elementary schools, a high school and a clinic, and there's 500 Haitian Christians, most who have graduated from our school, who are running that entire ministry. And so my brother is the only American that comes and goes. There are Haitian graduates around the world. A uh, couple of pastors in, in France who have immigrated, uh, pastor in New York, Boston, Florida, there's Haitians who have immigrated and uh, in Haiti, the the mayor of Laogan is a graduate of our school, and one of them is a judge. Great things have happened. 30 years ago, an 18-year-old girl signed up to go to Haiti for a year. Her name was Paula. She came from a Mennonite farming community in Singers Glen, Virginia. And she and I met in Haiti and fell in love and got married. Yeah. And um, so my wife and I have spent uh, our life together in ministry. And um, 
20 years ago, my grandfather had started a Christian children's camp in Massachusetts. And back in the 50s, my parents ran it. I grew up there as a boy. And this old broken down, you know, Christian camp, it was going to get sold and the money was going to be donated to other ministries. And at a board meeting, I said, no, let's not sell it. I, I love that old place. And the burden fell on me to turn it around. And uh, 20 years ago, my wife and I turned this camp into a children's day camp. So on top of running a mission in Haiti and got involved in Dominican Republic, and we have about 700 children in schools in Dominican Republic, I started spending my summers running a children's camp. And so the way I'd plan my life is I would schedule all my New England speaking engagements in the summertime. So May, June, July, August, September, I'd preach in New England, and then during the week, I'd run the camp. That'll work. <laughs> and uh, so like last summer, from April to August, I had 10 speaking engagements, and then I ran 10 weeks of camp. And it's a seven-day week, friend. And uh, sometimes it's a heavy load. And, um, but we started uh, a little children's uh, camp, and it, it got big. In 2019, we had 400 children, 124 staff, 10 weeks of camp. And uh, last summer, with COVID regulations, we had 260 children. This summer, we'll have 300 children. And um, so, Pastor Tim, the work I saw you doing yesterday, pouring into the life of those children, on that basketball court all day. You, you spoke to my heart, Tim, because that's what we do at this camp. One summer, we have a staff training in June. It's Friday night and uh, all day Saturday. We had built a campfire and I was sharing the vision with the staff. And my wife had index cards in a box of little golf pencils. And she handed out all the index cards. And she said, I want you to write something down that you want to give to God this summer. And when I got my index card and my little golf pencil, this word came to me, and I, I wrote it on the card. The word was greatness. I don't know where that word came from. But as soon as I wrote that word down, greatness, I felt guilty and I folded up the card and then we all threw our cards in the fire. And all summer long, I was thinking about that. Greatness. How could I give God greatness? And God was shining a flashlight on my heart. And I realized that it was my own desire for greatness. It was June... Like Tim yesterday, I was getting ready to just pour my life. I was going to spend another year, day and night, with these kids, just pouring into these kids. And I was, you know, I'm getting older, friends. <laughs> and we all have this desire for greatness. Each and every one of you here today, you have a desire for greatness. I don't care if you're 80 years old or you're 12 years old. God has planted that inside of us. It's in our DNA. We desire to be great. We want to do something. We want to be somebody. 
We want to leave our mark. Isn't that why we desire wealth? We want to make a lot of money so we can do something. We want to leave our mark. One Sunday, I had a speaking engagement in Milton, Vermont. It's about a, maybe 100 miles from the border of Canada. An old church from the 1800s. And out behind the church was this huge cemetery. Before church, I was just walking around. It was a beautiful spring day. And all these beautiful old stones. And I came across this one gravestone. It was unbelievable. It was from the 1800s. It, it had to have been like, I don't know, like 12 feet long. And it was, you know, just as tall. It was this massive, huge block of granite from the 1800s. And I was like, how did they even move it there? And it had the guy's name there. His wife didn't buy that for him. <laughs> that guy, he planned that before he died. He paid for that. He was going to let everybody else in the village know, mine is bigger than yours. <laughs> right? Don't the marketing men, the salesmen, the marketing, they know that you're you have this desire to be somebody. Your desire to be great. And so all the pickup trucks, you know, there's the F-150, there's the 250, there's the 350, there's the Dodge Ram, then there's the Bighorn, right? And there's one better than the Bighorn, there's the Lariat. And yesterday, at the gym, out in the parking lot, there was this truck I don't know if it was anybody from this church, but there was this truck. I took a picture. I've never seen one before in my life. It had dually wheels in the back. It was a big Ford, like F-350, but it had six doors, six doors. It wasn't a club cab. It was a, it was a trifecta. <laughs> and I had to look inside, and there was club seats all the way down the line. Man. When that guy drove down the road, he definitely was the big horn. <laughs> Lights on the cab, like, ooh, ooh, I'm coming through, baby. <laughs> right? We all want to be somebody. We all want to do something. And as the Lord began to shine the light in my heart, he led me to this passage of scripture in Mark 10. Verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, 
we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I imagine Jesus laughed at them. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten other disciples heard about this, they began, became jealous with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Think about this. Jesus just gets done telling them, I'm going to die. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going I'm to be resurrected. And James and John, James says, yep, that, cool, that's cool, bro. That's cool, bro. But hey, like, <laughs> um, James, James, we want to be like number one and number two in your kingdom. They weren't even listening. All of the disciples, Peter, there was like no way is Jesus going to die because they had read all the prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus said he was the Messiah. He was the liberator. They were under the rule of the Romans. And they believed that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. That's what he said. He was building a kingdom. They had seen Jesus turn the water into wine. Gold coin comes out of the fish. Feed the 5,000. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. We're moving in, babe. The Romans are gone. We're taking over. It's going to be sweet. We're going to build a palace, and me and my brother are going to be number one, number two. That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were thinking about. Jesus redefined greatness with a paradox. He turned it upside down. He's turned it upside down in your life. Do you want to be great? be the servant of all. Amen? Jesus did not scold their desire for greatness, but he encouraged it. Jesus is not at war with your desire for greatness. He's come to fulfill it. My wife comes from a Mennonite church called Zion Hill Mennonite Church. And at Zion Hill Mennonite Church, they have a, a gifts discernment committee. And she was a little 
13-year-old girl. They had a gifts discernment committee. These are Germans. Nobody in the church got paid to do anything. It was 100% volunteer, including the pastor. And um, so the, the gifts discernment committee would make up a list of all the chores in the church. Who was going to vacuum, who was going to clean the toilets, who was going to put the flowers out front. And, and you had to fill out this. You could nominate somebody. And then the committee... <laughs> the, the, the discernment committee would go over the list of, you know, the things that you'd be interested in doing. It's like, well, I don't know, I've heard Jill sing. I don't think so. <laughs> and so everybody in the church, starting at 13-year-olds, they had, they had an assigned task that they had to do. Everybody can be great. Everybody in this church can be great. Everybody. Because everybody can serve. And who was the greatest servant of all time? Who was the greatest servant? Tom Brady. Don't they, didn't they call him the goat? The greatest of all time? He just came out of retirement. He says he has unfinished business. Something... Let me read Mark. Uh, 8.31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Again, Peter's like, no way. You're the Messiah. We're going to set up the kingdom. It's going to be great. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will, soon, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Deny yourself? Take up your cross? Stop the sermon, Alan! I don't want a servant. I don't want to be a servant leader. I don't want a life of sacrifice. And I want to be a celebrity leader. I want to be a celebrity leader, and I'll have followers on Facebook and Twitter. At night, while I'm watching television, I'll send out a tweet, and 100,000 people will like my tweet, and they'll make comments, and they'll share it. We could have an internet church. We'll do videos. And in every video, I only wear brand new clothes. 
Do we have any celebrity leaders in America? Do we have any celebrity politicians that want to send out tweets and stir up trouble in the news media? Do we have any servant politicians that volunteer on Saturday to work with the youth? In the New Testament, there's two stories about a basin of water. Two stories about a man with a basin of water. The first one was Pilate. When they brought Jesus before him to judge. And he asked for them to go and get me a basin of water. And Pilate washed his hands in front of the people and says, I want nothing to do with this man, Jesus. And the second story is about the Son of God. The night before he was crucified, he prepared a meal for his men. It was his last message. It was his final sermon to his disciples. And the Son of God got down on his knees with a basin of water and began to wash the feet of his disciples. Whoever shall be the greatest amongst you shall be the servant of all. Wow, what a message. Every day, each and every one of you has a to-do list. Things you want to do, I got to get done. Tomorrow's Monday, you're back to work, you're back to school. We all got a bucket list of all these dreams. And in our busyness, I want you to imagine that God has a to-do list of things that he wants to do. And sometimes in my busyness of even running ministries, because there's, there's the mechanics of it, right? You've got to mow the grass, you've got to open the door, you've got to make a delivery, you've got to get this, we have to have a meeting. Even in my busyness of running a ministry, during the day there'll be this window of opportunity that opens up where I have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. At Camp Woodhaven, one spring, it was Good Friday before Easter. I had bought two three-door stainless steel refrigerators from a local company. I could have bought them on the internet, but they were too big and heavy to get into the building because they would have to go through the door like a coffin. We'd have to get them on end. So I bought them from a refrigeration company. They sent the truck out with three guys, rough-looking guys. And um, they had all these tools and hand carts and stuff like that. And they were expensive. And these three guys, they got them through the door. And I could hear them yelling at each other in Spanish. And it went, you know, like in the door as a coffin. And they flipped it on its back and then up on its wheels. 
And they set these two three-door refrigerators in place perfectly and they balance them. Not a scratch. Excellent job. We get outside. I said, thank you. Thank you. I respect you for the work that you do. I respect you. I want to buy each of you men lunch. I want to buy you lunch today. I want to thank you for the work that you do. I opened up my wallet and I handed each of them a $20 bill. Boom, boom, boom. I said, now, I want to give you my greatest possession. I says, hey, you know, I live in Florida. I got a big house in Florida. I run this camp. I got a lot of stuff. But before you leave here, I want to give you my greatest possession. I said, my greatest possession is my faith in Jesus Christ. Today is Good Friday. Today, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. One of them was a Christian, and he lit up. Before those three men left, we were hugging and fed them first, then plant on that seed. <laughs> That's how it is in Haiti. You gotta feed them first, then they'll listen. That's how it was with Tim yesterday, the basketball court. You've got to feed them first, then they'll listen. After these guys left, I felt so good. It's like the sky opened up. I said, thank you, Jesus. That was the most important thing I did all day. Today, when you leave here, you go out into Townsend, in your busy life, I want you to look for those windows up opportunities where you can share your faith with somebody. Never ask somebody, do you go to church? Because I tried that, and they always feel guilty. And then you never know what church they go to. Might be, you know, like, could be like Jehovah's Witness or the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and you get a weird response, right? Don't ask that question. Here's what you ask them. Say, are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? It works every time. The Walmart. Are you a man of faith? Can I pray for you? Hey, I want to encourage you. Say something positive. Say, God bless you. Plant that seed of hope. People are hurting in this world. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. wants to be used of God. Can you say, here am I, Lord, send me. Each and every one of us are missionaries and we're going to go out here and we're going to take some territory for Jesus. Amen? Amen? At this point, I'd like to show you a little video. You know, so many years ago, Seth met us at Creation Festival and his mom and dad sponsored this little, little, little kid in Haiti, Yagil. The mission had been in Haiti before Yagil was even born. And so he started out at four years old in our school, became a Christian, and today, this morning, Yagil is the pastor of the church in his village in Nepali, and he runs the entire school for that 
village with all the other teachers. So he's got like a team of school teachers that he runs. So he's the pastor and superintendent of schools in his village. Let's roll this video. Four years old, my mom brought me to school at Newshans. My parents didn't have money to send me to school. I was dreaming to become an engineer. Hearing things about Christ, I feel, oh, it's, it's good to be a part of this. And... Um, when I was uh, about uh, 17, I was getting baptized in Bodmer, Napoli, and in the ocean. After, I was dreaming to be a part of the change that I have in mind, um, to influence people. I manage a school. Being a pastor, it's, uh, I, I feel that I live in my dream. If I have that possibility to meet my sponsor, Janice Baker, I will thank her for being a part of me, of my life, and uh, to influence my life in a good way. Without her and through new missions, I don't know where I would be. There's a lot of children on the street, you know, cleaning cars because their parents cannot send them to school. It would be important if someone could sponsor a child. My prayer for Haiti, it's one day for the people in Haiti turn to Christ because Christ is the greatest need that Haiti has. Wow, what a legacy. What a legacy. Precious. This morning, you can sponsor one of these little guys. And um, there's no monthly set amount. You can pick any amount you want to donate. So you're a monthly partner. You pick the dollar amount. Pick out a boy or a girl. Pull out this envelope. Name, address, email, phone number. Give it to the staff. Um, 
Southwest free luggage, right? So I love about Southwest. So I brought up a suitcase full of books to give away. So I did this book um, quite a while ago. This was my daughter, Julianne. We were living in Haiti. She's now 26 years old, married. And I did this other book, Witness Cow. It's really an evangelism book. So I've got some free books. You can pick up a free book, sponsor a child. And uh, Pastor Alan, would you come and close the service? All right, Seth. Will you guys say thank you to George and Tellus? Let me pray for us, um, and the praise team's going to sing, and then I'll be right back. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your work um, and the legacy of faithfulness um, in Haiti and in the Dominican Republic for the work that New Missions is doing. Church, will you rise to your feet and sing with us?